Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. My name is Oliver White, and today I'm joined by James Ward. James is a Java champion, co-host of the Happy Programming Path podcast with Bruce Eckel, and a longtime technology advocate that you've probably seen at companies like Adobe, Salesforce, Lightbend, and Google, where James is now embracing the role of Kotlin product manager. I've been lucky enough to know James for quite a while now, and we've worked together and collaborated in, in many different projects over the years. And as you're about to see, James is able to give software engineers a very welcoming and solid foundation when it comes to thinking about development, adopting new technologies, and as the focus of this podcast, application modernization. James, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's, it's great to see you. Yeah, we go way back. I don't know. Maybe the first time we met, you were at Zero Turnaround, and we met in, I don't know, Slovenia or somewhere, somewhere. Estonia. Fun. Estonia. Yeah, and the, the zero turnaround yeah, J Rebel days. I, I got to meet lots yeah. of great people during that time. And uh, those were excellent fun days. Yeah. Yeah. So we go way back and had some overlap at uh, TypeSafe, Lightbend. And mm -hmm. yeah, that was that was super fun. So yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen to, you go see. from really intriguing role to an even more intriguing role uh, over the last <laughs> decade or so. I did just give you an intro, but do you have a, a 50 word bio? You know, how do you describe who you are and what you do and 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 so on? Yeah, it's a good question. I I'm really just a nerd. I <laughs> I uh, love to write code and been doing that for a really long time and just love it. And so I've been able to to do that in a lot of different capacities over the years. And I think a big part of my career has been helping developers learn new things. And that's been super fun to be able to, yeah, just help people grow and learn and do that in all sorts of ways. Well, I'm always growing and learning too. The functional programming, as you know, back when we were at, at uh, TypeSafe, it was, that really made a huge impact on my coding and how, how I build programs. And so now I kind of describe myself as a typed functional programming zealot, but sometimes <laughs> I have to compromise on those ideals to, to get stuff done. So that's, I guess, the best short bio I can think of. Well, that that's good enough for me. <laughs> what has been your experience when it comes to modernizing applications? Perhaps becoming a functional programming zealot actually rolls <laughs> into that. Do you have any particular kind of success or horror stories that you would care to recall for us? <laughs> Modernization is always hard because you know we we build stuff and I work a lot with the enterprise and so the enterprise you've probably heard DHH's thing about like move fast and break things or whatever I don't know if it was he who first coined it or not but anyways I think the enterprise is in some ways kind of the opposite of that they're like oh it works now don't touch it you know like or move like, fast break and break it. nothing please <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. right and so so that's that's always the challenge at least in the enterprise space is that we want to be able to move fast and you know break things but in the enterprise we can't because oftentimes that means like lots of money is at stake or potentially people's lives are at stake in the enterprise and so there's a huge challenge there and so with modernization i look at it as a spectrum and I have been on the outer fringes of modernization and tried to get people to be at the like the 
far end of modernization. And I think that taking massive steps is generally not the best approach. That's where I've seen people often fail is try to do too much modernization all at once. And so looking at it as a spectrum is, okay, what, what kind of baby steps can we take to modernize is usually a much better uh, approach or at least an easier way to be successful. If I was going to say like, you know, go all the way to crazy amounts of modernization, I'd be recommending programming languages like Unison and Flix and Rock, like these languages that are doing amazing, innovative things. But very few people can be at that edge of modernization and be successful. Some people can, but for the masses, you know, we're talking about modernizing in much more incremental ways. And that's how I think people can get more success with modernization is to take some baby steps into it. I also think it's important to talk about like what modernization actually is. I look at it as that spectrum, but also the way that I kind of classify what modernization is, is it's anything that makes it easier to deal with more complexity because hmm. complexity is always growing and there are tools and approaches and things that enable us to more easily tackle that increased complexity. And so I think that through that lens, we can be like, okay, there's a lot of different ways that we can modernize and yeah, we can dive into all the different ways, but I'll pause there. So you, you mentioned a couple interesting things I wanna hop back to. Um, one, you mentioned, you know, modernizing is a difficult thing and you mentioned people's jobs are at stake and, and that's certainly true. In a recent survey we did, we saw that 97% of respondents expect organizational pushback from even suggesting a modernization initiative. And the main reasons were risk, fear of change or fear of a ripple effect due to making changes that are unpredictable, just the cost of it, the concern that there's not enough expertise or people to get the job done, and so on. Yeah. There can be huge risks in, in changing things. And that's a lot of what the enterprise is doing is mitigating risks. And so any big change to a working system is a risk. And so, yeah, I think that's something that we always have to balance is that risk aversion with the benefits of modernization that mm -hmm. we may get. You mentioned that, you know, baby steps are, are generally the way to go and that the I believe it's been referred to as the big bang approach to modernization, <laughs> which is you know, as, as you can imagine, pretty drastic. But if you're a major financial services provider that's processing a billion dollars a day on a 20-year-old system that is, you know, absolutely critical to having no interruption of any kind, the Big Bang approach won't exactly work for that yeah. sort of... And, and these very are... Very likely to fail. Are, yeah, these are the sort of people that we're hearing from that are keen on modernizing, but the fact of the matter is that they they've got a powerful and very important system that is in you know responsible for the majority of their business processes and revenue and where do you where do you go from there maybe i can uh ask you about you know do you, what, what experience do you have in um helping people kind of rectify their thinking process when it comes to modernization what are they getting wrong at first and you've seen an opportunity to kind of realign the path. Yeah. There's a lot of uncertainty when you begin to think about what you want to modernize. So you have to 
do some experiments is often the way to figure out like, okay, this is gonna be a massively risky project that has an indeterminate amount of time before we can actually ship it to production. You know, a lot of times you just don't know that until you actually do an experiment. And so there are some experiments that you can look at and say, okay, this is gonna be a little bit less risky. And so maybe we start with that one. And I think that one of the ways that I look at this through is that it is essential that the delivery pipeline is something that actually works, that you can, mm. you have a way to get changes to production reliably, safely, and in a short amount of time. And so I think that one of the biggest places for a lot of organizations to start is just on the delivery pipeline side. And this is, this mm. goes back to my days at Heroku with 12 factor app. 12-factor app, a lot of it is about getting that kind of delivery pipeline correct, reproducible builds, being able to externalize configuration so that you can change your code and, and reliably change the environment that it's running on or built for and running on. Um, so externalizing configuration. So 12-factor app, I think, is still important, an important piece of the build pipeline, getting the build pipeline right. That's one piece that I think is essential to this whole thing. Because if you can't more reliably ship faster, then you're not going to be able to modernize anything. That's kind of the, the foundation. Um, so just to make sure I understand, what you're, what you're suggesting is that having a reliable build pipeline, even if it takes longer than you like, but having these processes in place, at least automated to at least some degree as much as possible, but having the actual build and release pipeline as a stable, you know, uh, foundation is something that you would recommend as being number one, even if yeah. you're not beginning to refactor or rewrite anything for microservices. Yeah. What happens if that isn't the case? I think we've all heard lots of horror <laughs> stories of, of the, the way that people deploy software and how horrible it can be and the risks associated with deployment. Really what you're trying to do is reduce the risk of getting to production. And then that enables you to then be able to make changes with that reduced risk and rolling out what you've actually done. And so there's a lot of pieces in, in deployment pipelines and you know we could go into more details there, but, but I think that that's the foundation. You have to get the deployment pipeline. You have to be able to know, okay, this commit is goes through this process to get through automated testing, to get through you know, CICD, to get to production, to potentially get rolled out into a canary, validated that it's not breaking anything in production. And so that then we can, we can then and flip it over to production. So yeah, reducing the risk of deploying is I think an essential place to start because if you don't have that, I don't think you can really start messing with many of the other things that you could modernize very easily without introducing a lot of risk. Right, it, it's like you can't really optimize a process that doesn't exist. <laughs> right, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of horror stories about people and teams and how they do their deployment and the downtime that is often associated with doing a new rollout so that because the risk is so high of doing a deployment, they only do it like once every six months. And it, so I think you got to start with reducing the risk of getting to production. And it just feels better for developers to actually have their work being rolled out to production more often. I think people are more productive when their work is getting to production. I think there's some like cultural changes associated with this too. 
on teams where developers will do very long sprints uh, or not even sprint marathons, whatever, you know, when the culture is that somebody can be working on a branch for months and months and months and not ever have to get that thing merged in like that is not culturally a good fit because that's creating high risk. So the shorter the cycles that people can get to, that may mean using feature flags as a way to, to turn off features in production, but at least getting things into the main branch, being able to get the main branch to production in a rapid, low-risk fashion, I think is essential to the whole thing. Yeah, um, one thing we're starting to, to notice a lot more of in the days of what we're calling the great resignation is the, the factor of team morale. And, you know, team morale might have been a kind of a marketing tagline for, you know, development tools companies that are, and in the past, it might have been that, oh, well, yeah, it would be nice if our developers are happy too, but mainly we just want their code and we want to get that into production. And, you know, when you're dealing with legacy applications that are, that were written 15 or 20 years ago, making sure you have a team around who A, at least knows it and B is willing to work with it, that's becoming a concern. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, everybody wants to be on teams that, that they can be productive in. And so, yeah, setting up the culture and environment so that that works well is definitely important. So after, after getting a build, a strong build and, and deployment pipeline, I kind of uh, railroaded you a little bit, but you had a, a second point. Yeah. So I think that the next one that, that I think about is, developer productivity. There's so many organizations where developers for a variety of reasons, their iterations are just way too long. You know, they, they may, the time that it takes to make a code change and then actually verify that change in some way could be minutes, potentially long, you know, double digit minutes. There's just, just too many horror stories of developers moving very slowly because of the environment that they're in. And that could be that, you know, it's a massive project and builds take a long time. Well, the investing time into reducing that iteration cycle, I think is essential to what you talked about with kind of developer happiness and, and productivity. But this doing this, it, I think is one of the modernization areas that's really important. So there are tools that can help with this. Test containers is one that I, I use a lot and just love because test containers makes it so that developers can have their services that they depend on and automatically managed for them, the, the resource cycle of those managed for them. So they can run their tests and they're running their test against their Postgres database. And that's not a different database than they're using in CI and in production. And so creating consistency is a huge productivity win. And so, yeah, I love test containers. And um, that's been definitely a, a big part of my modernization. And you don't want the developers to have to spin up a bunch of services and then have to deal with the life cycle of, okay, now we got to restart all these services to be able to then test this code change that I just made. Test containers just makes all of it so much easier. And the consistency uh, reduces a lot of, of risk where you can have the exact same service running on the developer's machine, or you can use test containers cloud <laughs> if you want to use a cloud service for that. And then CI, same service, production, same service. So reducing a lot of risk there too. So yeah, love test containers as a tool for that and the developer productivity side. Let's jump ahead and talk about some of your favorite tools and technologies. I mean, you've literally been coding since before Java was even a, a thought. 
in uh, James <laughs> yeah. Gosling's head. Let's start with maybe tools and technologies, and then we can talk a little bit about kind of, let's say, concepts or patterns that you think are useful for people starting their application modernization process. I love test containers as an example. Uh, Sergey, the CEO and, and co-founder of Atomic Jar, is a friend, and uh, awesome. I remember him telling telling me in the past that you know one of the challenges he's seeing in the Java enterprise market is being able to use Docker effectively on a wide scale across a large development team. And I thought, wow, I felt like this was a sort of problem that might have been figured out already, or or something, and yet it's not. So give us uh, maybe your top three or five uh, tools and technologies uh, aside from test containers that you think are worth worth it for developers and architects to check out? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of different directions to go with this. And, and because the modernization is a spectrum, it's like, how far do you want to go? So I'll, maybe I'll, I'll walk through kind of some of the pieces to the spectrum that, that I see some of the highlights. So test containers obviously is huge in that. But being a programming language nerd, I think a lot about the programming language side and how the programming language kind of steers you towards more modern approaches and things. So my path through programming, I did go to Java in 97 or something like that is when I started Java. So a long time in Java. And then, as you know, back in TypeSafe, I got into Scala and I was initially very hesitant to Scala. It was just such a different way to think. But after years and years of much uh, mentoring by, by some of our, our friends at TypeSafe, I really love the functional programming approach to things. And there's some pieces of that that I would kind of slot into the modernization approaches, things that, that can make you make it easier to deal with more complexity. So in functional programming, immutability is a, a central theme. And for me, immutability, I don't, I don't write mutable code anymore. Very, very rarely will you see me use a, a bar in, in Kotlin or in Scala, which is mm -hmm. the, the mutable way to do things, reassign uh, variables. And immutability does a couple things. One, it makes it so that, for me, it makes it so I can actually like understand the flow of my code because there's not, nothing is hidden. Everything is uh, I can trace directly through the path of execution and know exactly where mutations happen because mutations happen by copying and copying is an explicit thing that you do. And so there's just the value of being able to understand my code, which, which is a huge value. This impacts debugging and all sorts of other things. But then there's when you are immutable, you no longer have a whole class of potential bugs. You don't have to deal with thread safety because immutability is by definition thread safe. Mm. So that's been a, a huge impact is being able to parallelize my code. Uh, if there's something that I can parallelize, then parallelize it without having to worry about threads stomping on uh, state and, and giving me unexpected behavior. So that's been huge. But then the next kind of step to this is trying to write as much of my code in pure functions, which are functions that are essentially based on immutable data. So a pure function takes inputs and anytime it is given a given input, it will always return the same output is the kind of definition of a pure function. And I now write almost all of my code in pure functions when I can, because that allows me to, again, like 
understand my program, know how it's working. And immutability, uh, immutability and pure functions, they, to me, just give me a better foundation for how I structure a program. So that's been a huge one on the programming language side. There are programming languages that make it easier to do pure functions and immutability than others. I learned this all initially in Scala. And so obviously Scala is very kind of uh, supportive of, of this approach. But now being in Kotlin, I do this a lot in Kotlin and Kotlin supports that pretty well as well. So I think that's, that's a big one is trying to make as much of the program immutable and pure functions. Pure functions are much more easily testable. They don't talk to the outside world. And so you can test your business logic in isolation without having to worry about it, you know, requiring and updating the state externally, that sort of thing. So it makes it easier to test and those tests run a lot faster because they're not integration tests. So all sorts of benefits that I'll, but I'll pause there and see if you have any questions or comments before I go into more. Yeah, no, I, obviously this is great. I'm thinking about a developer who's working with a, a legacy Java app, and he, you know, they're getting excited about functional programming. What are the sort of things they're going to be able to bring to their executive team or their boss to say, "Hey, I've got some ideas for modernization. How can we enact some of them?" What are the sort of things that developers and architects should say to their executive team to get backing for a modernization project. Like, so going from, I figured out a way to make things thread safe to the CIO <laughs> yeah. says, we should do this. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's kind of a chasm. Um, how do we cross yeah, it? Is. Yeah, I think, um, I think that is hard because I think from the management side, oftentimes they're like, well, why do you need to rewrite this? You already wrote it. You know, it, yeah. it works. Why, why are we? And my so, code was bad. Uh... <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that they're with a lot of modernization efforts. That is a big challenge is getting buy in. I think that you could go the productivity angle like, oh, this is we're going to invest some time here. But ultimately, on the other side, we're going to be more productive, be able to deliver faster that sort of thing. But oftentimes, I don't know if that's a super compelling argument. And so yeah, what about the what about the cost? Yeah. What about the risk? Yeah, great. More productivity right. is good. Um, yeah, yeah. But but obviously, like, at what cost? Right? Often, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Management's thinking about what the cost of that is. And, and it's like, we can't take time to like, you know, go do this other thing because then that's taken away from the features we need to build. And so I don't know if I have a good answer to how to kind of sell executives on the value of modernization, because I think it makes sense at the developer level, but when you try to explain, oh, this, we're going to invest, you know, a couple months, but over the next few years, we're going to regain all that and the productivity benefits. Like, how do you really quantify that? I don't think there's been enough like studies done that have showed why these things matter, why they pay off in the long run. So yeah, and I think that's definitely one of the challenges that we have with any modernization effort is how we sell it to the executives. I think that's just just hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. You have I any think, ideas um, on how to, how to do well, yeah, I do. I actually do have some ideas. But <laughs> I was going to ask yeah. have you, um, have you followed any of the CIO.com surveys over the last couple of years that are looking at kind of top level trends? And one thing that happened between 2021 and 2022 is that application modernization 
jumped from the number eight priority last year to the number three priority this year. Wow. And uh, that that was that's, that's the that's yeah. a huge jump. So yeah. the executive team is appears, according to these surveys, appears to be very aware that application modernization is something important. I think the pandemic and just the state of global affairs have taken away the, let's say, motivation to focus on purely greenfield projects, like let's try to rewrite this whole thing in a new programming language, rather than, okay, what we've got is still working and we need it. How do we incrementally refactor it and, and so on? So it's, it seems like the executive team is at least on board, but they still need to be shown the return on investment or, for example, the ability to calculate technical debt across an application portfolio. So technical debt, I wanted to, that's one thing I did want to mention and see what you thought about technical debt, because it's, it's kind of the, uh, the stuff that people want to shove under the rug and, and worry about it later. But what experience do you have uh, with understanding the impact of technical debt on on the work you've done <laughs> yeah it's i have so much technical debt you know <laughs> that i have over decades you know accumulated and then you think about organizations and all the technical debt that they have it's hard i think that it's always going to be there and so it in some ways it's a matter of prioritizing like which debt is hurting us the most <laughs> And, you know, it's like looking at the interest rate of your credit cards and being like, oh, like, you know, this one's a 20% interest rate. We should probably get that one paid off, you know, quicker than the one that's like 3%, right? And so I think that there has to be some amount of investment if you do want to put cycles to paying off technical debt, which, you know, not everyone is actually able to, to do that because they're not able to convince their management that they should. But, you know, if you are able to pay off your technical debt, uh, some of it you know, look at what debt is hurting you the most. And I think that the delivery pipeline stuff is huge. Developer productivity is huge for me. And then there's the pieces of production that can be massive time sinks. Like if you look at the developer cycle, like, okay, as a developer, what is my, what does my cycle actually look like? I've got my like inner cycle where it's my IDE giving me a red squigglies, right? And that's like, hopefully like 300 milliseconds, I'm getting that feedback. Then you look at the compiler actually running on my code and validating my code. Like that's, you know, hopefully taking a couple of seconds, ideally, you know, with good caching and all that, <laughs> ideally. Uh, and then you look at, all right, now I'm gonna like run my unit tests. And then the next layer is my integration test. And then I've got pushing to my SEM and kicking off a CI system. Like, so you, you know, you keep just expanding this onion of when I'm finding out about the issues. <laughs> so then the next layer out is production. And production is the absolute heaviest cycle, like longest cycle to figure out issues. And so I think that's another important aspect to modernization is you really want to be spending as little time troubleshooting issues in production as you possibly can, because that is the longest cycle for figuring things out. And so a big piece to that that I wanted to touch on, which comes back to programming languages and tools, is nullability. A lot of, in the world of Java especially, a lot of the bugs that end up in production that 
are hard to figure out are null pointer exceptions. And so one of the things that I do in Kotlin and Scala is to try to really reduce the potential for null pointers. And there are ways to do that and great ways to do that in Kotlin and in Scala. In Java, it gets a little more challenging because in Java, everything is nullable. And so being safe around nulls is really hard in Java. So there are ways to do it with optional, but it's one of those places where more modern languages enable modernization in better ways than the older languages. And so if you can't move to a new programming language, then you're going to have to just take some tactics and some uh, static analysis tools and that sort of thing to be able to help you. Whereas in the modern, more modern languages, you kind of have those tools built into your, your toolbox. So, but I think the, the meta point is the place where you want to be spending the least amount of time troubleshooting issues is in that production. Like try to pull those, try if we look at it as a, like onion, we want to be pulling our gravity towards the center so that hopefully we can get to a place where most of the feedback that we're getting about is my program correct is actually at the most inner part of that circle in, in my local developer cycle. And there's some huge impacts to that and way more than baby steps we can go in that. Like when I'm coding in Scala, I put as much as I possibly can into the type system so that the compiler is validating that my program is correct much more than other technologies that I use because I've been able to really leverage the type system in some major ways. But again, it's like pulling that gravity to the core, to that center where I'm finding out about things as quickly as I possibly can instead of finding out about my issues in production, which is the worst and longest cycle. So yeah, that was a long rant on yeah. productivity. <laughs> Hey, it's all good. And, and just the idea of um, a production failure with a 15 million line of code monolith versus, you know, one of the microservices is down. Um, yeah. that, that's certainly a much more all hands on deck fire alarm for the, an entire company, an entire development team, rather than a, a smaller kind of, uh, let's say, micro team of engineers focused on specific functionality. Yeah, like how hard is it in a big monolith to reproduce that issue somewhere? Usually in a monolith, it gets much harder to actually reproduce the issue. And then if I once I do figure out what the issue was, how long does it take to get it fixed and rolled out? And obviously in the microservice world, it's uh, a lot easier generally to make that fix and roll it out than it is in the big monolithic world where you may have to wait months to actually, you know, get your change out to production or schedule downtime with your customers or whatever it may be. So yeah, microservices can definitely be helpful there. It all comes back to the build pipeline, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that really is the foundation. You, you have to have a very low risk way to very quickly get changes to production. So uh, as we wind down a little bit here, I wanted to ask, do you have any career advice for a brand new Java developer or even developers or, you know, not even not even Java, but, you know, software developers, uh, let's say somebody who, who just joined the workforce yesterday, as well as somebody who's been around uh, as long as you, you know, what sort of career advice would you uh, would you offer up? <laughs> you can also decline the question. That's okay. <laughs> no, it's a good question. I have I have focused my career, and I don't know if I'm going to go as far as saying this is advice, but my path has always been steered by: Am I having fun with what I'm doing? 
Mm. And I've been very lucky to, to be able to, to have fun and learning new things and teaching others things. And yeah, I mean, it's my career is, is just always been fun. And I've been lucky in that when I'm not having fun anymore, then I've been able to transition to something else fun. And so I don't know. I don't know if that works for everyone, but for me, that's been something that's really steered my career is just the, you know, am I having fun with what I'm doing? And yeah, hopefully people can find places to work and, and career paths that, that are fun for them and, and fulfilling and all that. So that's, yeah, have fun. <laughs> Luckily, uh, luckily, change. we're we're in an industry where the demand is always exceeding supply. Yeah. Um, so this gives people a lot of opportunities. Well, James, it's been really great talking with you today. I really hope we can somehow meet again in person. I'm not sure when that might happen. We will. Yeah. I'm sure we'll cross paths in person sometime soon. I think I'm about uh, eight thousand miles away from you. I'm in Prague, Czech Republic. Yeah. You're in Colorado. Yeah. I think Iceland is in the middle. Let's just hit up Reykjavik jug and <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of our podcast topics. And for our listeners who would like to have a little bit of fun at the end, I'd love to uh, bring James into the lightning round. So this is where we ask rapid questions of different sorts. And let's see what our guest has to say. <laughs> um, awesome. What's the last song you listened to? Uh, it's probably Beach House Once Twice Melody, the new Beach House album. So good. I know Beach House and I'm a fan. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. What do you do to stay healthy? Uh, living in the mountains in Colorado, you know, always uh, getting out hiking, biking, skiing in the wintertime. So mm. yeah, Colorado makes it easy. What is one of your favorite comfort foods? Uh, hot dogs, brats. So, mm -hmm. so good. Yeah. Are you a mustard or, or ketchup guy? Mostly mustard. Yeah, I like, you know, ideally some, uh, um, what's that stuff that in Chicago they put on hot dogs, like jalapenos and then that um, sauerkraut. That's what it is, sauerkraut. Mm. Yeah, mustard, sauerkraut. Yeah, some celery salt. Your European style. Yep, yep. What is one of your favorite movies? Um. This is really weird, but there's this movie called PCU. I know and it. And yeah, it's so is that with silly. Jeremy Piven? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Jeremy Piven. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's so good. PCU. So for anybody. I don't know why. I don't know why I like it. But. I think James and I might be dating ourselves, but um, for anyone under the age of 30, probably wouldn't have come across this, but PCU, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, if we could bring the T-Rex back through cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely bring the T-Rex back. I mean, I think it would be great if like T-Rexes took over the planet. <laughs> well, <laughs> not going to be that much room for Kotlin, I guess, but <laughs> just, you know, better for everyone. Oh, the, that's the way to stop climate change. Just bring the T-Rexes back. Let them loose. <laughs> all right. Well, James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Oliver. That was fun.